Now let's take our Bibles and open to uh, the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about, chapter 1. And uh, hopefully you've got an outline sheet that will help you. So even if you came in a little bit early, perhaps you missed that. Uh, it's on the green sheet. And if you um, didn't get one, maybe you can just jump up and grab one. That'd be fine uh, because it uh, will be a help to you as uh, we go through this passage. I think it's fair to say that most of us probably have a, a mental image of, in our mind of what Jesus looks like. And probably we've gained that impression over the years by uh, artists' impressions that we have seen, pictures of Jesus in books and cards and posters and on the internet and pr probably even in movies. But if I was to um, <clears throat> put on the screen artist's impressions of a number of biblical characters, just their person with no other props, okay? Um, you put a, a sling in someone's hand, you're going to think, okay, well, that's David. Okay, no other props, just the characters. If, that, if we put Daniel up there, put David up there, put Matthew and Mark up there, we put Jesus up there, a number of biblical characters we go through. We may not agree as to, you know, who's Daniel and who's David and who's Matthew and Mark and so on. But I'm pretty sure we'd all have a fair idea as to which one's Jesus because of the impression that we have gained over the years. But the truth is, we have very little knowledge of what the Lord Jesus Christ looked like while he was here on earth. Apparently he had a beard. That's according to the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. Evidently, there was nothing in his overall appearance that would especially attract people to him, according to Isaiah 53, verse 2. Although we do know that children liked him. The portion of scripture that we have open before us this evening, in that portion there is a very graphic description of how Jesus appears in glory now and how we shall see him one day. For the Apostle John also wrote in another place, we shall see Jesus as he is and not as he was. Last Sunday evening, Pastor Brendan expounded unto us the first eight verses where John provides a powerful introduction to the revelation of Jesus Christ, which climaxes in a quotation from, the, from God Almighty himself in verse 8. But now in verse 9, John transitions rather abruptly to a vision that he sees of the glorified Jesus Christ in heaven. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a saviour. And John sees this Jesus now in heaven exalted high. And what he, what he saw, what he saw absolutely overwhelmed him. Now John knew Jesus probably better than most he had been one of Jesus' disciples. Actually, he'd been one of the 12 apostles. He was actually a, a member of the inner circle, Peter and James being the other two. 
And yet John alone was known as the disciple that Jesus loved. John had been with Jesus three and a half years. He was there when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. He was there when Jesus was hung upon the cross. He was the first apostle there to the empty tomb. He was the writer of the fourth gospel and of three epistles. John knew the Lord, but the vision of Jesus that he sees here was like nothing that he'd ever seen before. It was like nothing he'd ever imagined before. It was overwhelming. The effect upon him was profound. And if we saw Jesus as John saw Jesus... It would overwhelm us. It would be the most significant thing in our life. It would shake us to the core of our being. It would motivate us like nothing else. Like electricity, it would shock us out of our lethargy and permanently, I think, permanently cure us from our perpetual indifference. And thankfully, John wrote down everything that he saw. But before John reveals the content of the vision, he tells us about the circumstances of the vision, verses 9 to 11. So let's look at those verses first. And it's almost as if John is going out of his way to shine the spotlight on Jesus because John just introduces himself and his circumstances very humbly and with great simplicity. Verse 9 begins, he says, I, John. Now John could have pointed out items on his resume that no one then alive would be able to equal, but he didn't. Instead, he describes himself simply as your brother. He's writing to these different people. He describes himself, I'm John, your brother. And then he goes on to emphasize the common experiences that he shared with his, he shared in common with his fellow readers. Verse, first of all, he tells them that he is their companion in tribulation. In other words, like the people that John was writing to, John also was going through tribulation, persecution, because for the cause of Christ. He himself had been exiled like a common criminal, exiled to the island of Patmos for no other reason than his faithfulness to Jesus Christ, his faithfulness to the word of God, his testimony for Jesus Christ. He was suffering because he was a Christian, as were the people he was writing to. He identifies with them, companion in tribulation. But then he goes on to say he's also their companion in the kingdom. In other words, John says that he's, a, he's, a, a, he's part of the same kingdom as his readers were. Present spiritual kingdom, which will one day become a, a future earthly kingdom, established at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the second advent. And then thirdly, he says he's also their companion in the patience of Jesus Christ. In other words, John identifies with his readers in the, in, the, in the area of perseverance. The Greek word for patience there literally means to remain under. That is to patiently endure difficulties, to patiently endure tribulations without giving up. And actually the word for tribulations there is very descriptive. The Greek word is very picturesque. It pictures the, the, the grinding of, of wheat in the mill or the crushing of a grape in the wine press. That is, it refers to outside pressure, outside pressure, which at the first appears to crush and to ruin. But actually it proves 
to be of greater service. For what happens? The grain becomes flour and the grapes become wine. And so it was with John and his friends. The persecution they were enduring, the tribulation that they were enduring, appeared to be crushing them and ruining them. But in reality, it was only preparing them for more fruitful and effective service. And how frequently in the Christian experience has God's people found exactly the same thing? God working in their troubles in that way. It's one of the most beautiful truths in the New Testament, perhaps, but perhaps one of the hardest to endure. And that's why this word companion is so important. The word translated companion is related to the concept of fellowship. Literally, the Greek word means in fellowship with. Now, today, I think it's hard for most Christians to imagine fellowship in the church without the so-called three essential of what food, folks and fun. That's what actually put on the bottom of a bulletin, wouldn't it? We're going to have some fellowship together. These three ingredients come along. And yet John demonstrates here that fellowship, certainly within the early church, centered on a different threesome. That is, it, 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 it was all about identifying with his brothers and sisters and supporting brothers and sisters to persevere through tribulation in light of the coming kingdom. We're, companion, we're, we're companions about that. I'm a companion with you in this way. We help each other, we support each other to persevere through the tribulations in light of the coming kingdom. And so, brethren, I say, let's bear that in mind next time we gather together for some fellowship. Let's bless one another in that way. But not only was John in the Isle of Patmos when he received this vision, he tells us in verse 10 that it is also in the Spirit. The term in the Spirit occurs numerous times in the Bible to describe the Christian who's under the control of the Holy Spirit, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. But the term is also used to describe the state of a prophet or an apostle who receives revelation from God. That is, that person at the time entered into some elevated state where God supernaturally revealed things to him, things that were beyond the realm of human understanding. The Bible tells us that people like Ezekiel and Daniel and Peter and Paul receive revelations from God in the form of visions. And John used the expression four times in the book of Revelation. Four times he had four different visions, of which this is just the first. Furthermore, John says that he received this first vision on the Lord's day. And there's some scholars who suggest to us that this phrase is the same as, um, same in meaning as the day of the Lord. Of course, which many of us know is a very common expression, particularly in the Old Testament. And if you take all those uh, references and put them all together, the day of the Lord refers to that extended period that begins at the beginning of the tribulation period, when God again begins with, deals with the nation of Israel, all the way through the tribulation, all the way through the millennium, into the new heaven, the creation of the new heaven and the new earth. All of that is the day of the Lord. The trouble is, <clears throat> what John is seeing here in Revelation chapter 1, this vision, is not within that time period. Okay? What he sees is before the day of the Lord. What he sees is before the rapture. What he sees is the church age, which is distinct from the day of the Lord, which precedes the day of the Lord. The expression is the Lord's day. It's only used once in the Bible, and that's here. 
And yet we do find it was used in uh, second century writings to refer to Sunday. That is the phrase, the Lord's Day, became the customary way of referring to Sunday because that was the day when Christians gathered together. That was the Christian's day. The Lord Jesus Christ rose again on the first day of the week and so Christians honoured the first day of the week. They got together, they gathered together. They called this, this is the Lord's Day. We gather together on the Lord's Day. Now with that in mind, what we see here is what I'm willing to call you know, a tremendous devotion on the part of John. Okay, even in exile, even in the adverse surrounding of a rocky penal colony, the elderly apostle sets aside, sets aside time on the Lord's Day, Sunday, to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, whose goal we know is always to exalt Christ. And perhaps he's even gathered together with others, as would be John's want. He's a veteran evangelist. Perhaps he's even gathering together with others to worship and to pray. Maybe he was kneeling in prayer at this moment or reciting psalms, but... Whatever he was doing, being in the spirit on the Lord's day, something supernatural took hold of him and he was in a vision taken out of this world and saw the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. Certainly it was a unique situation, exclusive to John. But there is a point for all of us here which I think is worth pondering. Okay, if John in such adverse circumstances could be in the spirit on the Lord's day, how much more? Should Christians like us who live under so, so much better circumstances seek, how much more should we seek to observe the Lord's day and honour the Lord on his day by fellowshipping one with another and encouraging our brothers and sisters to continue to persevere through tribulation in light of the coming kingdom. Each Lord's day is special. Each Lord's day provides us with opportunities like that. But the one here described by John is in a category of its own. Immediately John heard, in the vision, John heard behind him a clear penetrating voice calling him in a great voice, it says, like a trumpet. And the identification was profound. Verse 11, it said, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. That is the one who's the beginning and the end of all things. This is a title that God gives to himself three times in the book of Isaiah. And it's also the same voice and the same identification which we read in verse 8, which claims to be the voice of God Almighty. The identification is profound. And the instructions were simple. What thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Okay, write it in a book. And initially, this little book... Actually, the Greek word for book there is Biblion, where we get the word Bible. Initially, this book was intended to be sent just to the seven churches, among whom John had evidently, probably already ministered. And you can see on the map, although it is rather small, I'm sorry about that, smaller than I thought it would be. But you can see on the map there, the churches there are all in southwest Asia Minor, more or less facing the Isle of Patmos, on which John was in prison. And they are listed in the scriptures in clockwise order, beginning at Ephesus on the coast, then northward to Smyrna and Pergamum or Pergamos, then east to Thyatira and southeast to Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea, which actually is due east and inland from Ephesus. 
Evidently, when the voice began to sound, John had his back to the voice. Verse 12 tells us that he then turned to see the voice of the one that was speaking with him. In verses 12 through 18, John records the content of the vision. And as he turned, the first thing that he noticed was not the person speaking, but seven golden candlesticks, which are identified down in verse 20. Scripture interprets itself, which are identified for us in verse 20 as seven, the seven churches. The Greek word translated candlestick is luxnia, which literally means a lampstand. That is a stand upon which was placed an oil burning lamp. These were used to light a room at night. And here they symbolize the churches, which makes absolutely perfect sense because the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, that the church at Philippi and all churches everywhere are to shine as lights in the world. And here they are golden, because gold was the most precious metal. And the church, the church is God's most beautiful precious entity upon the earth seven is the number of completeness and here are the seven churches obviously there were plenty more actually if you look at uh, the churches that Paul wrote to he wrote seven letters to seven different churches there were certainly plenty more but seven symbolizes the churches in general yes there were actual churches in real places we'll begin to look at that next week but they're also representative of all kinds of churches that have existed throughout all church history. To every one church, the Lord says, whoever's got ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit, the Spirit of God is saying to all the churches about this one church. And all churches, everyone still need to hear about that one church and the next church and the next church and the next church because all churches in general are more or less like these churches. They're representative. Verse 13 says that in the middle of the lampstands, John saw one like unto the Son of Man. Son of Man, that's a title that comes to us from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Where Daniel sees, oddly enough, a very similar vision of the Son of Man, he says, the Ancient of Days, who came in the clouds of heaven. There was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom and all people and nations and languages should serve him. A very clear reference to deity. But the term son of man is also used in the gospel to refer to Jesus Christ in his humanity. Son of man. In other words, the glorified Christ the divine Lord and Master of the universe still has his human form. John saw him as the Son of Man, still in his human form. We reminded this morning that Jesus became a man at the incarnation. He took upon himself a body. He still has that body and he still bears in his body the mark of the crucifixion, even in his glorified state in heaven. This is no doubt... Jesus and how appropriate is it that he should occupy the prominent place in the midst of the churches because the Lord Jesus Christ deserves central place in every church and in every individual's heart this is Jesus no doubt 
But not Jesus as John remembered him. In his earlier years, John remembered Jesus preaching to the multitudes and healing the sick and being thirsty and tired and hungry and homeless and suffering on the cross. But now the appearance of Jesus here sent John's mind racing back some 60 years ago to a powerful experience he had on the Mount of Transfiguration. There Peter, James and John witnessed Christ transformed before their eyes. Very, very briefly, very briefly, he unveiled his glory. And such was the effect upon them. They, 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 they were terrified. They didn't know what to say. They were speechless. And now towards the end of John's life, he's seeing a vision of the risen, ascended Lord Jesus in his glorious splendor and John uses the, the most descriptive terms that he can muster to, to put into words what is essentially indescribable notice his use of through this passage his use of similes he said it was like this and it's likened unto that the only way that John could describe this sight to finite creatures like us John records for seven things. It's the number of completeness. He records seven things about Christ, the Christ who spoke to him. There's a sevenfold description of Christ. First of all, he tells about his clothing, verse 13. Clothed with a garment down to the foot and girded about the paps with a golden girdle. The clothing of Jesus indicates that he is a person of great dignity and great authority. Long ornate garments in John's day, were only worn by someone who didn't do any manual labor. Okay? Manual labor, their garments were short so they could move around. Not this one. The picture here is someone with great status, great authority, and a, and a golden bound band around the chest reminds us of the description of the high priest garments that we read about in Exodus chapter 20, 28. And it says that for all their ornateness, ornateness they, were, they were made for glory and for beauty. One of the duties of the high priest was to tend the golden lampstand in the tabernacle. Every day, fill them with oil. Every day, clean the soot. Every day, trim the wick. Had to closely inspect and to care for the lamp so that they continually burn before the Lord. Continually send out the brightness. And here is Jesus, our great high priest. In the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, carefully inspecting, caring for the churches, helping us always to burn brightly for the Lord. Secondly, he talks about his head and his hair. So it was white like snow. White like wool, white as snow. White hair speaks of old age. And therefore, in that culture, was connected with the idea of great wisdom and timelessness. The phrase white as snow also emphasizes the idea of purity. The white hair and head also connects Jesus with the Ancient of Days that Daniel described in chapter 7. 
That term, ancient of days, belonged to God the Father, but it also belongs to Jesus Christ, equal with the Father, one with the Father, as to his divine nature. White hair, white head is an emblem of divine authority. His eyes, verse 14, continue, his eyes were as a flame of fire. Fire is often associated with judgment in the scriptures. And Jesus' eyes displayed the fire of searching, penetrating judgment, piercing in its fiery, in their fiery holiness. Nothing, nothing is hidden from the Lord. Penetrating in his discernment, seeing the inmost depths, burning away every obstacle, every barrier, every facade, knowing every motive. Previously, John had seen those eyes filled with tears as Jesus wept at Lazarus's grave. But these are the eyes of the one before whom all things are laid bare. The book of Hebrew tells us, Neither is there any creature that is not made manifest in his sight. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And you are included in that we. Jesus sees. He walks in the midst of the churches. He sees the true character of the churches. He sees the true character of every person. It's transparent to his sight. It speaks of his omniscience. And maybe there is a connection between these piercing eyes of Jesus, burning eyes, and... <coughs> What we read in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 13 when we appear at the judgment seat of Christ, when we appear before the Lord and he examines us, maybe he does it with his, his burning eyes and that just purges away all the dross, the gold, the gold, the silver, the precious stone remains, the wood, the hay, the stubble, it's, it's all gone as we stand in his presence. Fourthly, John sees his feet, his eyes go to his feet his feet were like under fine brass as if they burned in the furnace since fire is connected with judgment these feet like under fine brass as if they burned in the furnace speak of someone who's been through the fire of judgment and come forth with refined purity jesus has certainly been through in his days of his temptation upon the earth the days of his humiliation been through the refiner's fire those trials that he experienced in his earthly life, the book of Hebrews tells us that these are the things that help him to be a sympathetic high priest. Brass is a metal also connected with sacrifice. Israel's altar of sacrifice was made of brass. It's called the brazen altar. And brass is also a strong metal, the strongest known in the ancient world. Therefore, feet like under brass are emblems of stability and permanence since it was considered the most durable metal substance. Fifthly, his voice is described for us in verses 15 and 16, verse 15b. His voice was as the sound of many waters. This means that Jesus' voice has power. It, has, it is majestic. It, has, it is clear and strong like a trumpet. It's broad and deep like the sea, majestic and powerful like Niagara Falls. 
conveys a sovereignty, his sovereignty over all the earth. It's a voice of authority which stands out above the rest. No one answers back. Every excuse is drowned out. This is the voice that called the world into being. It's the voice that will one day raise the dead. All that are in the grave shall hear his voice when he comes again. Verse 16, out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword. This is the effectiveness, the effective power of his word. Once spoken, it cannot be thwarted, cannot be stopped. With it, he'll smite nations. With it, he pierces our soul and spirit, penetrates the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Number six, John sees his right hand, and he had in his right hand seven stars. The right hand is the place of honour. And in Jesus' right hand are seven stars, which are explained for us in verse 20. They are the, uh, the angels of the churches, it said, or the messengers of the churches. And they're all spoken about and addressed in chapters 2 and 3. The word angelos, Translated angels here. The word actually means messenger. And it could and often does refer to those angelic creatures, supernatural beings. And if that's the case here, it might imply that each church has a guardian angel. But the word is also used commonly in a non-technical sense. That is, of just a human messenger. That's what the word means. Messenger. James chapter 2 verse 25 is used that way, just a human messenger. Luke chapter 9 verse 52 is used of a human messenger. Perhaps a human leader, perhaps the pastor of the church. For example, 2 Corinthians 8.23. Paul says, whether you do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you, or of our brethren be inquired of, they are the... They are the angelos, the angeloi, the, the messengers, the, angel, the, ang, the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. So here we see that there are stars, messengers that are securely in the hand of Jesus, safe and secure in the mighty hand of Jesus. And then number seven. John describes his face. His countenance was as the sun that shineth in his strength. His countenance or his face was shining with such brilliance that John could only liken that to the noonday sun. Now John saw that countenance with Peter and James a long, long time ago when Jesus was transfigured before them. And on that occasion, he says his face shone as the sun. But here Christ over... In conclusion, his, over, his, his overall appearance, his overall appearance was such that John was completely overwhelmed. Spurgeon says an interesting thing here, which fits at this point. He says, what do you see in Christ's right hand? Seven stars. Yet how insignificant they appear when you get sight of his face. They are stars, and there are seven of them. But who can see seven stars, or for that matter, 70,000 stars, when the sun shineth in its strength? How sweet it is when the Lord himself is so present in the congregation that the preacher, whoever he may be, is altogether forgotten. I pray you, dear friends, 
When you go to the place of worship, always try to see the Lord's face rather than the stars in his hands. Look for the sun and you'll forget the stars. I think many Christians or many people, or maybe say say this way, many Christians mistakenly believe that people in our culture don't have any problem with Jesus. And in a sense, they don't have a problem with Jesus. That is their version of Jesus. For instance, many people in our culture embrace the the peace-loving Jesus of Gandhi or the self-actualizing Jesus of Oprah or the uh, highly regarded prophet Jesus of Islam. A few years ago, many people made a fashion statement by sporting a Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt. People love their own particular version of Jesus. As long as he fits into their ideology or fits into their comfort zone or helps to improve their life, Jesus is great. But John here brings us face to face with the real Jesus. And he is much more than we could ever have imagined. He is God with us. He is God almighty. He is God omnipotent. He is full of dignity and authority. He's timeless in his wisdom. He's peerless in his purity. He's divine in his antiquity. He's searching, penetrating in his judgment. He's piercingly uh, penetrating in his his fiery holiness. He is omniscient. He's totally stable. He's absolutely permanent. He's, He's majestic. He's powerful. He's absolutely sovereign. He's ultimately in authority. He's never thwarted. He's smiting the nations, he's piercing hearts, he's overwhelming in his brilliance, he's causing awe, which is resistless. And no wonder John fell at his feet as dead. John goes on to talk about the consequences of this vision, verse 17 onwards. First consequence was that of deadly fear. John says, I saw all this and I fell at his feet as dead. Isaiah had a a similar experience. Ezekiel had a similar experience. Daniel had a similar experience. When anyone is brought face to face with Jesus Christ in his glorified state, they are terrified. Realizing their own great sinfulness in his holy presence. Revelation goes on in chapter 6 to talk about another group of people who see the, the glorious Christ appear and they say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on, us, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits upon the throne. Brethren, it is a fearful thing to stand before him, guilty and unforgiven. It's a fearful thing to appear before him in our own righteousness. And brethren, I pray that is not you. I pray that is not you. I pray that when you stand before the Lord Jesus, the Lord, it's in the righteousness of Christ, the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is yours by faith. I pray that's the way it'll be for you. And that's certainly the way it was for John. And that's why he wasn't consumed. That's why the Lord reached out to him in divine comfort. For his deadly fear, there is this divine comfort. The Lord Jesus says, fear not. In the midst of the apostles' heart-stopping terror, Jesus stooped down, reached out his nail-pierced hand and comforted his old friend. 
told him not to fear. Then Jesus goes on to describe himself in exalted terms. Fear not, I'm the first and the last. I'm he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Therefore, John, don't fear. And therefore, all others like John who are being persecuted for the cause of Christ and worry what the future might hold, fear not. This is the meaning of the vision. That is a living, holy, majestic, omniscient, authoritative, powerful Christ stand in the midst of his churches. He holds their destiny in his hands and he says to them, he says to John, he says to us, he says, stop fearing. As a matter of fact, it's in the present continuous. Stop fearing. You're doing that. Stop fearing. He says, I was dead, yes, but I'm alive forevermore. And more than that, I now have in my hand the keys of death and the keys to the grave. And therefore you should not fear any place to go for which I have the keys. You may be persecuted unto death, but I'm still in control. I'm still the king. I still rule. The Christians that John was writing to were suffering. They were afraid, almost to the point of despair. And they were told to stop fearing. And they're given reasons to stop fearing. Jesus is alive. He's glorious. He's in total control of the whole situation. And then John receives this divine command, verse 19. Immediately the Lord reiterated the command for John to write down everything that he saw. And again, it's a very significant command when we remind ourselves of the, the circumstances. John had been banished to Patmos. Why? Because of his faithfulness to preaching and declaring the word of God. He was banished there actually to silence the word of God. But even though men might restrict his activities, they couldn't bind the spirit of God, nor the testimony of Jesus Christ, nor the power of the word of God. And so the Lord repeated the command to John to write down everything that he saw. And everything that he saw falls into three categories, three distinct categories relating to the past, present, future. He says, write the things which you have seen. And write the things which are, and write the things which shall be hereafter. Write it all down in a book. Things past things present, things in the future. The threefold division is the key to this book. Helps us to understand the book of Revelation. The things which you have seen doubtless refers to this vision of the glorified Christ which he's just shown to John. The things which are refers to the seven churches. They are in existence. He addresses them in chapters 2 and 3. Things that have to do with his present dispensation. And the things which shall be hereafter. Chapter 4 commences with John being caught up into heaven. It's just like the rapture. Come up hither, the Lord says, I'll show you things to come. And from chapter 4 onwards, chapter 4 to 22, these are all things which the Lord has revealed concerning the future. Well, let's just draw some things to a conclusion here. Well, let's make some applications of this vision. There are several principles I think which we can identify which will help us firstly make this point the better that we know the words and the grace of Jesus the more accurately we will present the gospel the better we know the words and the grace of Jesus the more accurately we will present the gospel over the over the years different methods have been developed for sharing the gospel 
And I, th I suppose, you know, some of them have their very strengths and weaknesses. But one popular method used to uh, share the gospel with many began this way. You know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And understood in context, that statement's perfectly true. However, in our pleasure-seeking, self-oriented culture, such a statement could be understood to mean, you know, come to Jesus and all your dreams will come true. And if people think that's what they're getting when they become Christians, they're going to be bitterly disappointed, confusing their philosophy of self-interest with God's plan of the gospel, which is really all about glorifying himself in the salvation of sinners. Now, Jesus promised that his followers would suffer. Jesus promised his followers that they would suffer. Think about the apostles. The founding members of the Christian faith, what they underwent in terms, of, in terms of rejection and stoning and beating and crucifixion and death by the sword. Consider what many Christians in many countries of the world are facing right now in being persecuted. And so this all your dreams will come true version of the gospel doesn't have any room for these kinds of experiences. But the Saviour who is revealed to us in the Bible and who is revealed to us very, very clearly in the book of Revelation is the one who in grace has gone before us on the road of suffering and in grace he walks with us in the midst of our life as his followers. Second, the better we understand who Christ really is, the quicker we'll respond in submission and obedience. If, if this Jesus tells you to do something, you, you don't say no. If this Jesus tells you to do something, you can't say no. If this Jesus tells you to do something, you can't do it quick enough. Let me ask, ask a couple of questions. Do I... Do I know and adore the awesome, glorious, powerful Jesus that, we, that I find here in the Bible? That's my question. Ask yourself the same question. Do you know and adore this awesome, glorious, powerful Jesus revealed in the scriptures? Or have I, have you, have we adopted a more culturally appropriate, mild-mannered, user-friendly Jesus of our own imagination? Well, what about this? What, what, what should John's portrayal of Jesus here, what, what should that, how should that affect my prayer life? Your prayer life. Okay. If, if this is the great high priest, if he's like this, what does that do to our prayer? What should that do to our prayer life? What should it do to my worship, my obedience? How does my life reflect a response the Jesus of Revelation 1. I hope you'll ask yourself the same kinds of questions. Thirdly, the greater our willingness to submit to, to Christ, the deeper will be the truths he reveals to us. The greater our willingness to submit to Christ, the, greater, the deeper will be the truths he reveals to us. No, you're not going to 
receive any special divine visions of what the future holds. No, you won't receive any new revelation beyond what is written here. However, John's profound perception of the person of Jesus Christ led him deeper and deeper and deeper into an understanding of what God's prophetic plan was. Because, of, because our understanding of Jesus is just so superficial, our understanding of, of Scripture is so superficial, we read the same words. But because our heart to Jesus is cold, our understanding of the Scripture is really, really dull. And the Word doesn't really come alive to us because our relationship with Jesus, our concept of Jesus, is not all that lively. But as we spend time with Jesus in, in this posture, as our eyes are open to his gloriousness, his truth revealed here becomes glorious to us as well. It's that prayer, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. You know who wrote that? David, the psalmist, wrote that. David, is, he was someone who writes scripture. He knows what it is to be inspired. Okay? And yet he himself acknowledges, you know, sometimes he says, I read the Bible and I don't understand what it means. And even he says, I need to pray that God would help me. And when our relationship with Jesus is kick-started by some greater awareness of who he really is, this kind of praying, Lord, I'm not just content just to read on the surface like so many of us do. Lord, show me. Teach me. Let me just give you a couple of, read a couple of verses which do reflect an attitude of heart which we must all have as we come to the scriptures. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and good understanding have all they that do his commandments. Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9 verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. According to those passages, what's the one thing that's essential for deepening our understanding of God's revealed truth? And let's ask ourselves, do, do we open God's word with that attitude? Do I show the kind of respect and reverence necessary to develop true wisdom and true understanding? Brethren, I present before you Christ. Christ as he is. Let's come before him in prayer as we conclude. Gracious Lord, thank you for what you have revealed to us in the scriptures. Lord, this is not human imagination. This is divine revelation. Thank you that John was in the position of being able to receive such. Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understood significant spiritual truth. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was given insight into significant spiritual truth. Lord, I pray that our love for you would increase 
And I pray that you would uh, help us to see more and more of what you've revealed in your word. Certainly concerning the future and concerning the present. But uh, Lord, we pray that you might uh, help us to see more and more of yourself. More and more of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, pray you'd lift our thoughts up towards you. Help us to see beyond the busyness of this world to that realm where you rule and reign over all things. Lord, give us courage to bear witness about you in this uh, wicked world. And uh, Lord, help us to encourage one another to persevere uh, through the tribulations while we wait for your coming kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.